I encourage us now, let us attend to the word of the, God, uh, the word of the Lord, and as we do so, I want you to think back for a second as to your first love. Remember that time where your heart was palpitating, you're in your hands, sweat? I, I want you to think about your first love. Now, I don't mean this necessarily romantically, so you can think not just of your first love romantically, but maybe of a car you had or uh, a sports team that you fell in love with, or, or a, a child, when the child was first born and you had that, that overwhelming sense, that passion, that love. The object is less important to me right now than your visceral response. How, how did you respond in that experience of that first love? Uh, do you remember the dedication do you remember that commitment when you thought to yourself, man, everything I do is going to be oriented towards this. I, I'm never going to fall short of focusing upon this. That's the orientation. Everything in which I'm going to orient myself on is going to be driven towards this idea of my first love. I want you to think a little bit of your first love here as we come to the scriptures. What would Jesus say to Hebron Church? How would he speak to Hebron? It's kind of what we've been asking ourselves over the past couple of weeks, and we have some insight into that, I think, in the following letters. Jesus actually writes seven letters to these churches, and we're going to look at the very first one here in a few minutes. He writes seven letters where he both uh, encourages the churches and where he challenges the churches. And so the question that we are doing as we're looking through these letters together is asking how much of the challenge belongs to us, how much of the encouragement should we hear in God's voice for Hebron Church. So at this time, I'd like to, you to attend to the word of the Lord. If you can, if you please stand for the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord, we pray, as always, that you would grant to us wisdom and understanding as we have heard your word, not to turn away from it, but rather to be fully challenged by it and to turn our hearts toward it, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Please be seated. If you have in your possession the bulletin that you might have received on the way in, if you flip it on the back side in the upper left-hand corner, you will see a, an outline 
of not just today's sermon, but basically the next six weeks, the, the following six weeks as well. These are seven churches, and Jesus writes seven letters to these churches, and every one of the letters follows the exact same format. They all follow kind of the same type of, uh, of structure. It's a very structured section. It starts by an address. It says, hey, this is who is receiving the letter, so to the church in wherever it is. And then it talks about the author, who sends the letter, Jesus himself, but it describes Jesus according to those phrases that we saw in chapter 1. If you weren't here last week and if you want to read chapter 1 again, please do so. Because in reading chapter 1, you will see a lot of the descriptions, the imagery that is used for Jesus that describes him in these letters. And then following the, the uh, description of the author, then you have a, a set of encouragement where Jesus says, hey, this is what you're doing as a church and I love it. This is something that is great. And then almost always there is a criticism. Yet, yet here is something that you can do better. Here's something that you have to be about. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And then there's a warning or an encouragement and a, a counsel. Hey, this is how you should go about following through with things. Finally, there's a command to listen and then a promise. This is what will happen if you do. This is the structure of these letters. This is a, uh, the format, and we're going to basically walk our way through this format each and every time because one of the things that we'll catch at is that these letters, I believe, are not just intended for the specific church in which they are addressed, but they are intended for the universal church. This is God's message to God's people everywhere, and certainly it applies to Hebron Church. Oh, I am so hoping and praying that what we just read about the church of Ephesus is how God would speak to Hebron Church. Oh, man, if he would say those words of encouragement, my heart would sing. And oh, man, do I fear that he might speak the words of Ephesus to us, that the criticism that is leveled to Ephesus is criticism that would apply to us today. The letter begins by being addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So this is uh, the first thing out. Uh, we're going to have time in, in uh, our time together here to look at the different churches and what the churches mean and represent. Ephesus was uh, the pillar of the area in which uh, in which Jesus addresses these seven churches. And we're going to look specifically at some of the churches in the past and how those churches, the specific churches, shaped the content of the letter. But here we have the church of Ephesus. But notice that the letter specifically is written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, this has prompted some people to think that there's a guardian angel of this church, and Hebron Church has a guardian angel, uh, and we have a guardian angel around or something along those lines, that the church itself has an angel that is specifically assigned just to our church and our church functions along those lines. An angel in Greek means a messenger, and so some people understand to the angel of the church of Ephesus to mean to the human agent that functions at delivering the message. So in this case, it would be the leadership of the church, myself, or the session, or something like that, to the, to the angel. Some people take this term, I think, to say, to the angel of the church is to the spirit of the church, to the 
ethos, the milieu, to, to, this, to the body as a whole kind of a representative of, of the church. As we're going to see a little bit later in this very text and then in all of the texts, these messages are directed not just to an individual and not just, I think, to a guardian angel, but I think specifically to the churches as a whole. So it's appropriate for us to take this address as saying not just to an individual or an angel in the church of Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but rather to the spirit, the essence of this church right here, Hebron Church. From the address, then, it goes to the author. Who is the author here? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, you might remember, from, if you were here last week or if you've read chapter 1 of Genesis, uh, <laughs> Revelation, that it, the John sees an image of Jesus, King Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the ruler of all things, and he is standing in the midst of seven lamp, lampstands. Now, we're later told at the end of chapter 1 that those lampstands are each representative of the church, that the church itself is pictured, is imaged as a lampstand. Now, why? Think about a lampstand. What does a lampstand do? A lampstand provides a place where the light itself can shine into the world. The lampstand is not the light. It is merely that which holds the light so the light can shine out into the world. And so Jesus represents the churches or imagines the churches as a lampstand, that thing which is placed in a position where it can broadcast the light of Jesus Christ to all things. Now, you have to be pretty particular about this to notice the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, Jesus stands in the midst of the lampstands. But in chapter 2, Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands. Now, I don't know how intentional that difference is, but I love the picture. Jesus just doesn't have the seven stars, which he does in chapter 1. But in chapter 2 here, he holds the seven stars. I, I like this idea of Jesus walking amidst the lampstands. What's it communicating? Our Lord's active involvement, Christ's active participation in everything that happens. What we see here is Jesus saying once again that he is not far distant. He is not observing Hebron Church from afar. Jesus, our Lord, is walking here amidst us in every situation, at all moments. There is never a spot where Hebron Church does not, not simply that God doesn't have his eye upon Hebron Church, but that our Lord is walking here in the midst of this church. And I beg you to start thinking of our gatherings that way. When we gather together, we're not gathering so that we can proclaim the praises of someone who is far off. We are gathering to proclaim the praises of someone who is walking amongst us at every moment and every day. He is the active involvement of our Lord. So what is the encouragement? I want you to look at verses 2 and 3. I know your works. That's how he starts it out. God, in each of the letters, he says, hey, I know what you're doing. He, he reassures us that this is not something that he's taken just by 
you, you know, secondhand knowledge or something like that. No, this is Jesus. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. Um, the word there is, is, is the most aggressive word you can think of in the Greek to represent the difficulties, the struggles, the hard work. Uh, John is, Jesus is saying here, look, I know that you're working, not I know that you're working hard. I know this is exhausting. I know that this is overwhelming. And I know that you are working, you are toiling, and you are toiling well. And your patient endurance. This is not something, you just haven't given up the first time it's gotten hard. It just, when, when ministry is difficult, or when the church is frustrating, or when the society around us refuses to see the light in which we are seeking to hold forward, Jesus says here, I see the patient endurance in which you are about. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and found them to be false. I see your zeal. I see your passion. I see your fervor and your excitement. I know I walk among you. I feel it, the fervor and the excitement. I know, verse 3, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. There is suffering going on here, and I know that. What a church. Think about this church. Faithful in service, patient in suffering, and orthodox in their beliefs. What a great church. Oh, that God would say anything like that to us. That you're patient in suffering. That you endure through the difficulties. And that you never let up. You toil hard and fast. That you hold purposely to the orthodox teachings of the gospel message. And that you will not allow anything that is not truth to be proclaimed in your pulpits. To be proclaimed in your church. What a great church. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that church? But, verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned your first love. Jesus clearly here is not talking about romance. He's not talking about your car. He's not talking about your sports team. He's not talking about your love of your children. He is talking about that first love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. I asked you earlier to think about your first love, and I wanted you not to think about the person or the object. I wanted you to think of the, the passion, the desire, the commitment that you made when you said, everything I want out of my life is going to be oriented towards bringing joy to this person. Everything that I have of my life is oriented towards setting this person in the center of my focus and of my attention. Everything I, and then what happens? Jesus himself tells us, the love of most will grow cold and will dim. 
the love will grow cold and will dim. And that's what's happened to the church of Ephesus. In the church of Ephesus, they know their theology. They're able to work hard. They're striving to do that which is good and what is right. They are enduring suffering for the gospel. And yet they have lost their first love. I know that there are individuals in this room whose passion, whose dedication, whose commitment to the Lord at one point overwhelmed them that all they could do when they woke up in the morning was think of the joy in which they had walking in Christ. And I know that that is dimmed and grown cold. Of course, the question is how much like Ephesus are we as a church at Hebron? If we can claim individuals, and I know you, and you know me, whose ardor has cold, what about our church? But Jesus doesn't just wag his finger at us and then leave us. He gives us counsel. He directs us. If you are one of those people whose ardor has cooled through time, and if you recognize our church as one whose ardor has cooled through time, what do we do? We can feel guilty. We can feel bad about it. We can try to manufacture feelings. Verse 5, Jesus provides a warning. He provides some counsel for us. Remember, therefore, from what you have fallen. Remember, the first step is to remember. Now, this is not just something called mind. This is not just to have, this is not something that flashes through our heads. Uh, remembering biblically is a very intentional, a very focused action. To remember something in the Bible is to, to take time to dedicate yourself, to orient yourself around it. That's what it, when Jesus says that he will, when God says that he will remember our sins no more, what he's saying is not that he's going to forget them because they're never going to flash through his mind, it's that he will no longer dwell upon our sin any longer. And here we are being told, if you want to reclaim that first love, what do you do? We as a church, you as an individual, must remember what it was like. We must remember that first love. First we have to remember, then what do we do? Verse 5, remember Therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your actions. Move in a different direction. Repent means to change. Remember your first love. Change your life. And then finally, do the works that you did at first. Resume what you did. Remember, repent, resume. All start with R. I like that. That works out. Do the works that you did at first. That's the command. That's the command, the warning that we are given. And now look at verse 7. Verse 7. 
He who has an ear, we're gonna, by the way, if we skipped over verse 6 there, that's with the Nicolaitans. We're going to talk about them uh, in weeks to come. Um, uh, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Notice the next line, next words. To the churches. This is Jesus' address, not simply to Ephesus. This is Jesus' address to all churches, and not just congregations, but to every individual. This is what he is calling forth for all of us who have ears. Let us hear what the Spirit says. What does the Lord say to Hebron Church? What does the Lord say into your own life? And then finally, the promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Listen to what he says there. For those who conquer, for those who sustain, for those who plow through, for those whom God has called and will be present at the end, to those people, God will grant them to eat of the tree of life. Now, remember the tree of life. That was in Eden uh, when Adam and Eve was cast out. And here is the tree of life so that we might live forever. But the focus is not on living to get forever. The focus is not on being in Eden. The focus is on what Eden represents and eternal life represents. It stands for being in the presence of God. For those who hear, heed, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will draw us ever consistently into the very presence of God. Without love, a church's worth, a church's work is lifeless. Without truth, a church's work is meaningless. Without love, your life is lifeless. Without truth, your life is meaningless. We are looking through the book of Revelation. And I encourage you as we read the chapter, again, you've got a chapter to take home. If you, if you haven't been here the past couple times, we read a chapter, and then I urge you to take a, a chapter home and read it out loud. If you haven't done that, it's still time to do so. And trust me, talk to some other people. They will tell you that it is a benefit. It is a great blessing to do so. And because what we hear consistently is that fulfillment of the promise of our Lord, that we are blessed those who hear these words. So be encouraged. God is in control. Be encouraged. The future is safely in his hands. And be encouraged, for our Lord has already won the victory. What would he say to Hebron Church? I hope and pray that he would say, well done, you're toiling hard, you're enduring faithfully, you're orthodox in your thinking, and well done, you have not lost sight of your first love. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we would ask for that great blessing that you would grant always your people who lean into you, who depend upon you, and who express their love for you. Lord, we do so. We confess that in so often our love grows cold, 
that so frequently as a church we might be known as those who do things right but who do not love well? Or alternatively, Lord, that we love well and yet have no passion for the truth? Lord, I don't want any individual here in this room to be like that. I don't want to be like that. And Lord, we don't want this church to be like that. Rather, Father, help us to fulfill the encouragement that you gave to the Ephesian church and to take heed of the warning that you have given and to return to the fervor, the love, the ardor of our passion and love for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.